You're listening to Amphibicast. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining me again. Tonight, I've got a great guest. I've got Jack, and I'm going to try to pronounce his name as best as I can. Schoenhoff, is that it, Jack? Yep, yep you got it. <laughs> All right, cool, cool. I know, I just, I, I don't know why. Sometimes we, you know, we do a pre-interview before the show, and I try to get everyone's names right, but sometimes I just fail miserably. But Well, Jack, you know, I'm just unique. Yeah, no, it's cool, it's cool. So, Jack's been gracious enough to come on the show tonight, and he's going to talk to us about his YouTube channel, where he does a lot of presenter work. Uh, presenting different wildlife encounters and different experiences out in different environments, working with different species of reptile, amphibians, inverts, etc., all that stuff. But he's also a big dart frog hobbyist, so he's going to share some of his keeping methods with us, and we're going to talk a little bit about what it's like being a YouTube preventer, uh, excuse me, not a preventer, a presenter, in the natural history realm. So, Jack, my man, thanks for coming on the show. How are you doing tonight? Well, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm doing great. I'm ready to get into it. My pleasure. My pleasure. Well, if we're going to get into it, why don't we begin at the beginning? Why don't we start off with some of your earliest experiences with, with animals or nature or wildlife in general? Mm-hmm. How did you start out and what led you to where you are today? Absolutely. So just like anyone in the animal realm, typically where you start is where you start. Um, as a kid, I remember just going out into the backyard and just being fascinated with, I mean, anything and everything I could find out there. I was flipping, you know, our little stepping stones for little roly-poly isopods, toads, uh, little green anole lizards. Um, I even, at three years old, so my mother says, would take discarded water bottles and place them over flowers and catch multiple honeybees and just listen to them and then let them go. Um, So I've always just had a fascination to just take a step back, stop, and look closely at the world around me. And so that's kind of churned and blossomed into the more extreme side of things, which I which I participate in today. Um, But a lot of that stuff was kind of already inside of me. I was already fascinated with that. And then, of course, latched on to media about that. Um, I was a Zabumafu kid born and raised on Zabumafu, on Crocodile Hunter, Jeff Corwin, all the great naturalists, David Attenborough. And I could just sit in front of the TV all day with an with Animal Planet on, remote in my hand, grilled cheese sandwich in my hand, and just watching and observing and learning. And so I've just always loved animals, always had a passion for wildlife, and that starts starts at home, really. And so that's that's my origin story. Is I just have always loved animals, and. Uh, now I, I, I really get to dive into it because it's I work with some pretty cool stuff now. I've been charged by elephants. I've been, you know, hissed at by king cobras. Um, so it's it's pretty crazy now, but uh, humble beginnings for sure. You mentioned a couple of presenters that I, I just remember from, I guess you could say, like the golden age of, of Animal Planet. Steve Irwin, Jeff Corwin. I mean, obviously, you know, David Attenborough is in a, in a realm of, of his own. but were there any specific presenters that influenced you in a certain way? Like, I mean, I know like Steve Irwin had his own style. Jeff Corwin has his own style. Now we've got Coyote Peterson. He has his own kind of style of going about things. What are some things that you took away from different people that might have influenced you or given you some inspiration? Absolutely. So I, I think um, if I had to say, you know, the two biggest ones probably are Steve Irwin and Jeff Corwin. Of course, uh, the Crap Brothers as well. 
but I think Steve Irwin was just so intoxicating to anybody. You know, you could just look at him enjoying whatever was in front of him. You know, it could be an inland taipan, one of the most venomous species of snakes in the world. It could be a fuzzy little koala that was rescued and got sent to the zoo, you know, and he was just had such a fire for life and for the life on this planet that, you know, it's really just contagious. And so you see that and you're like seeing you're almost seeing the wild world through his eyes. And so that is kind of just the emotional side for me. But I would say Jeff Corwin um, is really what I pulled a lot from just kind of starting up my own type of show. And that was from a few different things. He's he's obviously very kind of relaxed and cordial on camera, but as well had a little more of that refined background. I just remember one part of an episode that really stood out to me. I, I think he was in... He was either in Madagascar or New Caledonia. He was with some gecko, and that's those are the gecko places to be. And I remember him saying, oh, this is this gecko, stating the scientific name, and then saying, you know, if I had to name this gecko, I would have named it da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And I just remember thinking, oh, my gosh. he, You know, he's so well-versed in these animals that he can just come up with a scientific name. That is crazy. And so that was really something that kind of inspired me. And I was like, I want to get to that point. I want to be able to do that. I want to understand these animals so well that I know them frontwards, backwards, you know, right side up, left side down, any way I can. And so I would say that those two probably more so than any other um, have just inspired my more of my show and more of my kind of attitude towards wildlife, towards biology, towards the natural world, uh, for sure. They're definitely two really influential people. And like you said, they definitely had their own style. Like Steve Irwin had, I mean, they both had, they both had passion and they both knew the material, but Steve Irwin was the passion. And Jeff Corwin was just like, um, like you said, he had such a tactful way, almost like an eloquent way of putting things across to people that really just made you want to not just appreciate like the, the presence of it, the way Irwin did, you wanted to learn more about it in a way that Jeff Corum was, was, I don't want to say better at, but he had his own style of, of explaining things to you. For sure. You, you got a lot more of that kind of technical side and that is a very real side in a lot of my videos because, you know, as much as I want to showcase these animals and help people, um, you know, get familiar with them, I, I want them to learn about them. I want them to kind of get fascinated with the intricacies um, that a lot of these animals present us with, because it's really great to just be able to observe on that physical level. Wow. This is a really beautiful animal. But if you're not a snake person, you're not a spider person, you're not going to immediately look at that and say, yeah, that's a beautiful animal. Even if I'm sitting here yelling it in your face, I want to show you what's unique, what's, what's intimate, what's personal about each of these creatures uh, to help kind of open people's eyes or maybe turn their heads on stuff that they kind of had closed the door to. Um, because that's really what I'm passionate about is is those kind of over oft overlooked um, types of animals. You know, your venomous snakes, your spiders, your insects, animals that are really, really important and serve a lot of just priceless roles in uh, the ecosystems they belong to. Do you have a target audience with your channel? And by that, I mean, do you, are you going after people who are sort of already interested in animals or are you going for sort of a wide audience in terms of, of trying to get everybody interested? Great question. So I specifically am strategic about the way I market my stuff. I, I want to reach as many people as possible. 
And so that's kind of, I fall in this little bit of a middle ground. I want to showcase rare stuff. I want to get into the technical, but I also want to keep a lot of stuff kind of light, fun, and easily understandable. I, I want to, I want a, you know, 10 year old to be able to watch it. I want an 80 year old to be able to watch it and not only enjoy what they're seeing, but learn something about it. Cause my goal is to reach as many people as possible. And what I found was happening is you've got a lot of these, you know, great educators and great influencers, but your average Joe, they're not going to sit through, you know, blue planet, you know, they're not going to watch six 50 minute episodes about one ecosystem across the world. They're just not, I would watch that. I love that stuff. I eat that stuff up, but on the other side of the scale, I don't want to just be kind of a, a, you know, a jackass level, like poking at something until it attacks you style animal show where it's just like, oh, you're just kind of goofing around. You're kind of messing around. You don't, you don't really provide any service to these animals. You're just kind of a host and you're, the animals are just kind of props as opposed to co-hosts. For me, I think it's very important that I treat my animals more as co-hosts instead of like subjects um, because I want to kind of elevate them and showcase them in a way that is is palatable and acceptable for the widest range of audience possible. Is this something that you're doing full time as a career or is this kind of like a 50 50 split between like work? I mean, you go a lot of places. How are you making time to get to all these different locations and do all this shooting? Absolutely. So uh, it's it's been kind of. A, an ever-changing hybrid of things since the beginning. Um, so we, if if you go all the way back to the beginning of my channel, we started everything in Costa Rica. And I actually um, got an internship down there. And I was working at the Monteverde Butterfly Gardens as a tour guide. And so we would work there um, during the day, you know, five, six, sometimes seven days a week. And I would walk people through the butterfly gardens, teach them about, you know, the native flora and fauna and all that kind of stuff. And then on our time off, we would go and we would film um, animals in the jungles of Costa Rica. And so that was kind of our first little step. And then from there, I did a lot of I would I would pretty much just work um, full time for maybe a month or so and just like stock all that to the side. You know, I, I mean, I was I was budgeting everything and just trying to save as much money as possible i'd message one of my friends who lives out you know in the middle of nowhere in some other country i'm like hey can you know can we stay with you can you take us around some places whatever and then i would travel for a few weeks at a time and now you know of course i had i have this big black spot in the middle of all my traveling with covid and everything and that really set us back and really what i'm doing this year was supposed to be everything we were doing last year um, but it's still kind of a hybridization of a few things. So now what I do is uh, I actually make a good amount of money doing the frogs as a business. So I breed the frogs, but I also supply uh, fruit flies to some local zoological institutions. Um, there's a huge, uh, beautiful zoological institution called the Dallas World Aquarium uh, in kind of downtown Dallas. And I supply them with all their fruit flies. And then I do custom enclosures with service in the North Texas area. So I make enough doing that to kind of support all my stuff here and pay, you know, for trips here and there. Sometimes I get um, we get some funding in where we can do a trip or something and not have to front so much of our own money. But as of right now, I'm working Jack's World Wildlife full time. Uh, but that's not where most of my money is coming from. And I'm really hoping to turn that around by the end of the year. 
um, because I would like to have the freedom to continue um, to pursue that full time because that's really what I'm really excited about. And, you know, the path that I'm really wanting to hit pretty hard, at least for this time in my life. And it's, it's expensive, uh, even even with friends, you know, it, places to crash. You know, tickets are expensive sometimes now more than ever. And finding, you know, the infrastructure to get all this stuff put together and paid for and, you know, got to have the right equipment and you don't want to lose anything. If anything breaks, you know, you got to replace it. Um, so it is expensive. But as of right now, you know, I make a little bit on YouTube, um, but it's uh, it's nowhere near self-sustained at this point. But I'm hoping to change that by the end of the year because we are really cranking up the quality and the quantity of episodes we are releasing. Yeah, I don't think people really understand the amount of production that goes into re uh, really anything. I mean, like with, with with me, we were talking a little bit. I mean, just so everyone knows out there, the average podcast from start to finish, from you know reaching out to a guest, the communication, recording it, editing it, etc. For an average podcast, about an hour and a half. The whole process takes about maybe six or seven hours. So for you, when I mean, you were telling me, what is it? It's it's, it's you guys will do like like 25 hours straight, right? In terms of uh, yeah. shoots. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sometimes, I mean, because it totally depends on the trip, like I said, and luckily I've been really prioritizing a lot of local stuff. So we go out, you know, for, you know, 10 or 12 hours and we're trying to get three or four or five episodes filmed in that time. Um, but sometimes, you know, if, if you're on a time crunch and we drove out to Florida in November and, and we were going, you know, 25, 26, 27 hours, of like hard filming, uh, you know, just collectively without any sleep. Uh, you know, we, we, I was telling you, you know, we were up at four forty-five to get in the water with bull sharks at, you know, six o'clock to then do that for an hour and a half, get out, go hiking, you know, for four hours looking for a super rare species of spider, which surprise we didn't actually even find. <laughs> so that was a lot of wasted energy and lots of sweat. And then we drove three hours or three and a half hours up to Tampa to pick up some friends to go look for chameleons. And then we were out looking for chameleons until, you know, four in the morning. By the time we found a motel or a hotel to spend the night, you know, it's 630. <laughs> and you're like, oh, man, well, you're just you're trying to jerk yourself awake at the wheel because, you know, you don't want to run into anybody. But you're just coasting on fumes pretty much. So the more but. That's the other thing with limited funding is you kind of have to cram so much into a specific, you know, amount of time. And if you don't get it, you know, you kind of don't quote unquote get your money's worth. And so I'm hoping too, once we start getting some more funds rolling in, hopefully, you know, we don't have to worry so much about that aspect. You know, it's it can be more relaxed, like, hey, we're going out here this week. We're going to get as many videos as possible, but it's not going to, it's not a make or break moment. It's not like, oh man, you know, we spent $800 driving out here and spending a week out here and we didn't get, we didn't meet our quota. And now, you know, we don't have anything. We don't have any money to do anything else. And then it's just like, you know, big old punch in the stomach. So I'm hoping we can get enough momentum to where uh, the channel can really start to just support itself. I mean, that's step one is just getting it to the point where, I'm not having to pull just so much out of my pocket to produce something that I'm really passionate about that, that people really do enjoy um, and positively interact with. It's just a matter of getting that one video, you know, picked up and, and getting us where we want to be and getting those subscribers in those regular views in and, and kind of putting us on the map. Yeah. It's that algorithm that 
YouTubers talk about, I know, which is, uh, oh, yeah. it's, it's so vital to just getting a successful channel. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you though, and this may seem like an odd sure. question, but I've had other, other YouTubers talk about it, d- different things and whatnot. I've had some, I've even heard some of them kind of come out flat out and say that amphibian content doesn't do particularly well. Have you, have you noticed that? So my, my channel is kind of strange because, uh, uh my my videos often are are imbalanced and that's because it's my 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 high scale stuff is the sting and bite videos so my top my top performers are my uh bite and sting videos and then my insect arthropod stuff in general so anything that's insects or arachnids or centipedes or sting or bite videos automatically do better and then a lot of my amphibian content um you know does kind of flop and i don't have that much on here like i did uh narrow mouth toads and i did um you know i've I've obviously done my frog room tour A, a few months ago i did just a little species highlight on my histrionica locales that i have so i don't i don't have you know dozens of amphibian videos to make a full judgment but my amphibian videos do underperform comparatively to my other stuff you know giant bullfrog catching you know wasn't up there with the venomous snake episodes red-eyed tree frogs i uploaded like three years ago and it has 1.7 thousand views versus uh you know something i uploaded one week ago stung by a cow killer velvet ant has 2.8 thousand views you know so it's just like right now this year i've really been prioritizing my insect videos, my arthropod videos of any kind, and the sting videos just to try and get some more momentum. And of course, we film reptiles and amphibians and all that stuff along the way, uh, but we're not necessarily planning trips around those species. They're kind of almost, I don't like to say bycatch because that sounds like I'm just like, oh yeah, we might run into some and it'd be kind of cool. It's always fun to run into different types of animals, but as far as like strategy-wise, what I'm targeting is we're mostly looking for you know, insects and, and, and arachnids and things this year. But I mean, even some of my really cool amphibian videos, like we caught a lesser siren and we were super excited because I'd never seen one um, up by me. It was in some of my old stomping grounds, you know, from, uh, from being a kid. And they're these really awesome elongate aquatic salamanders. And we were so surprised to find one and it, you know, really got our hearts pumping and we were super excited and, you know, it just didn't really do anything. Uh, and so I, I do find that amphibian videos, I don't know what it is because it seems like on other platforms like Instagram or TikTok, you know, the cute little frog culture is is pretty prevalent and people love to see pictures of tree frogs and and, you know, dart frogs and all that stuff. But it seems like once you get onto YouTube, with the exception, you know, of a few people doing like Troy has 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 good success with uploading a lot of dart frog stuff. And my dart frog stuff typically performs better than most of my other amphibian content um but it does seem like like frogs don't have quite enough sharp edges to to make them you know enticing enough uh for some of the youtube crowd in my opinion i don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing i i i <laughs> I, I totally yeah. hear what you mean though about the the sting and the bite and like there's there's no shortage of snake content out there there's no shortage of i i mean I, i'm I, i'm a big into arachnids as well but the arachnid hobby and the invert hobby b- blows the, the blows the frog hobby away, with the exception of certain certain species. But mm-hmm. I, I mean, I'm looking at some of these popular 
uh, maybe it's just because there's more with the tarantulas and inverts. I guess it's easier to keep many, many, you know, uh, like a large number of them. But with frogs, it's a lot more work. So it seems like in the frog world, you've either got, like you said, the really cool room tours, like like Troy does. You've got the spectacle videos, which is like an African bullfrog eating a chip a chipmunk or something like that. <laughs> right. And yeah. then you've got the cutesy white's tree frog wearing a little hat on type of yeah. thing going on there. So mm-hmm. you're right. It's just it's it's such an odd rabbit hole to go down because it doesn't the content is so different from other other niches with different types of reptiles and arachnids and other inverts and whatnot. Yeah, especially and and two, it's it's strange, you know, coming from from kind of my angle of like you know education of of outreach and stuff because really you know frogs and toads although amphibians you know are of course one of the most threatened groups of animals on the planet if not you know the most um you know it just seems like they they don't have a lot of i I don't want to say star quality but in, in terms of just you know high octane video subjects you know people want to see me you know wrestle down a a giant king cobra or or you know capture a giant centipede or let a giant centipede crawl on me as opposed to like oh i found a bunch of really cute toads today um you know and that's and that's just kind of the sad reality of i think youtube in particular is is very much a you got to have that enticing thumbnail you've got to have that that enticing title or you know your video is not going to do anything and i i get I see a lot of people specifically more in the reptile community kind of complain about co- uh, content creators like myself, not myself in particular, but just what they see, what they interpret as just kind of this shock factor of, oh, you're just exaggerating stuff or, you know, you're just blowing stuff out of proportion or you're marketing stuff just, you know, unethically because you, but I'm like, you, unless I'm, marketing my stuff in this way unless you have that bright pop of a thumbnail and that enticing title nobody's going to watch it nobody's going to learn about this snake nobody's going to learn about this insect and really i'm focusing on my content not so much my marketing of you know whether or not oh you think this is just you know kind of i'm just trying to elicit thrill from these people because it's like i like i had seriously had somebody talk to me and say Oh well, you know, it just seemed like your Black Widow bite video was just kind of like a grab for views, and I was like taken aback by that. I'm like, well, if I boil it down, every single video of mine is is a quote unquote grab for views. My my whole platform depends on people consuming and watching my stuff. Why wouldn't I want people to watch it? And if you would actually have watched my video instead of just looked at my thumbnail and read my title. You would know that I'm talking about, hey, listen, I'm debunking the myth, debunking the myth that black widows are fatally dangerous, that they are deadly animals, that they need to be killed on sight. I'm handling it for 10 minutes before I have to make it bite me. You know, and it's just like that's what I'm showcasing, not just you looking at my little billboard for my video and saying, oh, that was unethical that you did that. But that was a little bit of a rabbit hole that I went on. But I think it's important sometimes to just clarify with people like I I do. You do have to look a certain way on YouTube to even come close to having people consume your content at a regular level. YouTube is such a strange animal, but I, 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 
I agree with you when it comes to promoting content because I mean, first of all, I didn't take any sensationalism away from your videos. I, you, you have to, I mean, look, with anything in life, you have to hook people to get them in, whether it's giving out free samples at Price Club or it's, you have to get people, you have to get people's attention. That's just basic marketing strategy. So even like myself, I was talking to another, another content creator who I will not mention by name, but uh, he knows who he is. We were talking about promoting content and uh, the word bioactive, which I personally, I personally can't stand it. I, for so many, it, it just twists me for so many reasons, but I mean, I know that it twists him too, but he uses it in some of his content to get um, that whole crowd. Yeah, just to to, to get yeah. attention to that content. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I said to him, "Like, how can you sleep at night?" And he and he yeah, laughed. Right. I said, "All right." I said, "I'll try it too." So what I I mean, I have no real social media presence other than Instagram. I post pictures and whatnot. I promote the episode through there. And I started hashtagging the post with bioactive. And I ended up getting much more in the way of traffic towards the the posts just by hashtagging a word that I can't stand. So I I, I sold I sold out to the man. But right. <laughs> at the very least, maybe it's getting more people who will listen to the show and be interested in this content. Exactly. Just by putting that little hook out there. I mean, look, you, mm-hmm. you got to have bait to catch a fish. You know. Exactly. So, and that's and that's my whole thing is that. You know, this is one of the main reasons why I created this channel was to kind of be a rebuttal towards a lot of what other people were putting out. Um, I had this idea to make my own show, you know, years and years and years before I, you know, kind of mustered up the courage to do it. And this whole time I was telling myself, you know, oh, I don't have a crew. I don't have enough funding. You know, I don't have any camera equipment. Like, how can I even begin to start at that? And then what do you know? Somebody pops up out of the woodwork, Coyote Peterson, claiming, you know, ridiculous things about insect stings, rolling around on the ground, frothing at the mouth. And I'm going, hold on, I've been stung by that. I've been stung by that because I used used to do the sting test with my friends, you know, just to just to see, you know, like, oh, yeah, that's interesting. That hurts more than X or that hurts more than Y or, oh, that's cool. And I was like little to no educational value, just kind of fear mongering and putting a giant target on these really interesting, cool and important species of animals, a lot of pollinators and things like that. And I'm like, this is just a shame because you're using the public's fear of a certain type of creature to gain profit, to build a platform. And that really just rubbed me the wrong way. And that's where this this channel just I just said you know what I can't wait anymore I'm not making any more excuses I've got to start this now because I'm passionate about those stinging insects I'm passionate about ants I'm a big ant guy big social insect guy and I'm like you know what we're about to we're about to show the world that these are not monsters because that's my big thing these are animals they're incredibly reluctant to sting they're incredibly reluctant to bite when they do it's in protection of their lives and their offspring and their nests and there's no reason for us to you know unreasonably charge them with aggression or oh my gosh you know bees are so cute and so sweet but all the wasps i need to just burn alive you know and so i decided i needed to to hop on that and i get so many little coyote peterson fanboy haters on my videos and i don't mind because guess who came over watched my video 
and got that little seed of questioning planted in their brains about what Coyote Peterson is doing. Because if he's not right about that, you know, what else is he doing? And that's the big thing with YouTube is it's not Animal Planet. You know, he's traveling with, you know, a, a biologist, Mario, and I have nothing bad to say about Mario other than that I don't know how much he has done in the entomological realm with insects. And that's the only thing that I get peeved about is that they decided to do this whole spiel on stings and insects and arthropods um, with, you know, no real insect background. And so I decided, well, I'm going to do this and I'm going to bring in these people and I'm going to show them just really the truth. And I, and I used to have more of a, of a vocal presence about Coyote Peterson on my channel, you know, a few more little chick you know trips and nods to you know some of his videos and i really don't do that anymore i just let the videos kind of speak for themselves because i don't have any more energy to spend on people who you know are wanting to just profit off of wildlife as opposed to just you know getting people to enjoy it and fall in love with it because that's really what i'm about unfortunately everyone has their own styles of doing things and uh, I, I mean personally I agree with you. Uh, like I, we had we had company over the weekend for my my oldest birthday, and her her one of her cousins was over, and he was asking me about some of the tarantulas that I have. And of course, his first question is, he goes, "Well, are they poisonous?" I said, "Well, technically, yes." He says, "Well, which ones?" Yeah. He says, "Well, which one's the most dangerous?" I said, "No, no, 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 no. We're not doing that." I said, first of all, I said, "I want you to see one to appreciate just what it looks like. You know, visually, it's it's beautiful." It's got a whole other life outside of the fact that it's venomous. In fact, the fact that it's mm -hmm. venomous is probably the, the, the least interaction with anything else that it has, you know, right. more often than not, it's just sitting in a burrow somewhere, but it, it mm -hmm. took a lot of, it takes more work to diffuse that. I get, can I say stereotype, I guess that to, di yeah, to diffuse yeah, that, sure. that stereotype Absolutely. or that, that, that preconception that. Mm -hmm. this animal is no is nothing other than being venomous and, and obviously yeah. that's what you're going for with a lot of your, your insect videos yeah exactly well that's that's it's it's kind of like shaping public perception and one of the one of the best examples i can give because people kind of are confused by that but public perception shapes how we treat not only animals but conservation so if you go back before the movie jaws came out there wasn't this huge just social pushback against sharks. When you ask people, what's your biggest fear? Sharks weren't on the list, you know, and after that movie came out, you have people that are petrified about even going near the water. And despite, you know, shark attacks happening less often than people, you know, getting hit on the head and dying via coconut trees, you know, people really are apathetic towards sharks and which is a shame because sharks are one of our you know most threatened groups of fish on the planet you know the amount of shark finning and and you know bottom dredging nets that we're pulling up and just you know slaughtering you know hundreds and thousands and thousands of sharks every year people don't care and you say well okay well you know it's just sharks what's the problem but but every single animal has a key place in its own ecosystem. And sharks being the apex predator in a lot of the ocean hold these food chains together. And if we're apathetic about one little part of the puzzle, 
and we pull out that Jenga block out of the bottom, you know, we could have entire ecological collapse in certain ecosystems because of public perception, not because of what sharks are doing or have done, but because of movies that perpetuate the fear of certain animals. And it's the exact same thing with insects. We could if we could obliterate every megafauna species on the planet, any animal bigger than a house cat, boom, Thanos snap it away, we would be fine. If we got rid of all the insects, we'd be piled high in feces and dead animals, and we would be dead in, in a matter of months if every insect on the planet vanished. And it's like, it's a shame that we don't at least respect an entire huge important group that provides us with invaluable ecological services just because they're icky and they're gross and we don't like them why don't we like them because tv and movies perpetuate that they're scary they're gross they're different they have too many legs and we don't want them anywhere near us i was reading a study not too long ago about the implications of uh, I guess like s declines in salamander population in, in like a small mm -hmm. wooded area. And I never realized the extent to which they control so many pests, like so many insect species mm -hmm. are preyed upon them. And I, I, uh, for the life of me, I can't quote the study, but in any event, it postulated that if you removed all the salamanders, just the salamanders from this one, this, this one small area, the implications were just it was it was horrific. It was like the the whole environment collapses just by the elimination of one species of salamander. But no one but no one seems to care about them. And I I think that right. I, I often wonder the amphibian conservation agenda. To me, it's 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 different than other other species. I guess. And let me let me explain what my thought process is here. Sure. When people think about amphibian conservation, they, just like you said, they think about the entire clade of amphibians as being in, in jeopardy, even though there's plenty of species like American bullfrogs and cane toads, which are technically amphibians, but they're really, they're going to be here after we are, regardless of all the pressures oh, that we yeah, put on them. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> but I wonder if it's just because amphibians are such a hard sell for people that you have to group them all together and put the best foot forward, so to speak, to get people's attention because i mean at the end of the day no one i mean i'm just gonna come out and say it no one cares about a, a tiny brown frog that lives in southeast asia that no one ever sees during the day when they can worry about mammals or primates yeah, panda or, bears yeah yeah whales yeah. And, yeah well yeah and that's and that's you know the other huge motivation behind my channel because Really, at the end of the day, what what we really need to be focusing on now is is biome conservation, ecosystem con conservation. You know, this isn't you know the seventies saved the whales. We we need to clean the ocean. We need to make the ocean habitable for these animals. You know, you can't save all these you know atelopus and and dart frogs out of Central and South America, and then mow all that stuff down and put a bunch of cattle ranches out there and spread you know chytrid fungus all over the place and then expect for them to be reintroduced and so that's what i'm really passionate about is that whole like everything on this planet has adapted to survive in these specific places we have a planet of specialists and that's beautiful that there's all these tiny little niche places Every single one of these unique animals not only thrives, but contributes to the health of their native environment. 
And that's what I want to do. I want to put a spotlight on some of this stuff that, because you're right, nobody cares about, you know, this little Amiriga in the middle of South America somewhere. And they're not going to donate, you know, even a dollar towards that. You know, they're not going to donate a dollar towards rhino conservation or whales. You know, they might share something on Facebook, but they're they're really not going to go out of their way because it's out of sight. It's out of mind. It's just a problem that people don't like to look at. And I want to bring these issues, you know, to the forefront in a way that's entertaining, in a way that's educational and in a way that can make a difference. Um, my, my goal with YouTube is not only to, you know, be able to get it successful and get it supporting me and some of my next ventures, but to open a facility um, where I can actively uh, contribute and participate in the conservation of many, many different types of animals, as well as pledging a lot of money towards conservation efforts, towards um, wild area restoration, towards rewilding certain ecosystems and things like that, because that's what I'm passionate about, because that's what I love. And that's what I don't want to see disappear. Um, it's crazy to look at the statistics of, you know, 100 years ago, how much more forested areas we had, you know, 100 years ago, how much more of the island of Borneo was completely covered in forest, you know, and we've decreased, you know, just so much of our natural areas, so much of our ecosystems and, and species have gone extinct that we never even got to see, you know, and that to me is just the harrowing knocking on the back of my head that I just need to be getting out and doing as much as I can, as often as I can, because I'm passionate about that. Of all conservation, of wildlife conservation, of ecosystem conservation, I want to see you know these wild areas not only be protected, but thrive. Oh, I think that's something we could all agree on. I, Absolutely. I do want to just backtrack a little bit into sure. how you got into dart frogs, because we... Yeah. We are an amphibian cast yeah. after all, right? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of the idea. But yeah. I, I I saw your frog room tour on YouTube, mm -hmm. which is just the, your frog rooms. It's it's beautiful. Do you want to tell Thank us you. how you started off getting into dart frogs? And well, I mean, I we'll, we'll, we can kind of begin at the beginning and then we'll go from there. But how did you get involved with sure. them in the first place? So it's kind of a funny story because... Um, I got into dart frogs, I would say, probably at the end of 2018, uh, which is kind of late. And it's for reasons that I, I'm not quite sure anymore, but I've always kept animals. Um, I've always, you know, ever since I was a kid, I'd catch lizards and bring them inside, frogs, toads. I had my first frog, a dumpy white tree frog at four years old. His name was Crokey, and I loved him. Um, you know, and then as, as I kind of grew up, it was, it was a lot more reptile stuff, lizards, snakes. I started getting into snakes. And then from there, I started getting into venomous snakes and for venomous snakes, I started getting into live planted enclosures and I was keeping all sorts of these beautiful, you know, tree vipers and little dainty perching things that I could just put in some little, you know, spider wood and they would perch up in these beautiful little canopies that I was making for them. And I started going, I'm really enjoying making these enclosures. I really am. This is really fun. I really like building them out and letting them grow in. I, I, I took a lot of pride in what I was putting together. And so I was like, I'm just, I just kind of want to set up a lot more of these little vivariums. So I started setting them up and I'm like, well, you know, now they're just kind of fancy planters. I probably want to put something in here. 
and at the time I was working at the DFW Reptarium and we had a few species of dart frogs there. We had some Ufaga histrionica old line redheads. And I just fell in love with those frogs. I'm like, these are the coolest frogs ever. And I loved that Ufaga in particular would take care of and raise its offspring in an enclosed system, you know, and you just would have to keep them in pristine health and good husbandry and they would just spit out healthy babies. So I'm like, well, hey, that's interesting. I would love to not only create a little environment, but a functional environment as well with all these different moving pieces. Because before I did a lot of the bioactive uh, enclosures, uh, I did a lot of aquariums. And I was real big into saltwater aquariums uh, for a few years there, you know, 2016, 2017. And that I was real focused on growing coral and having, you know, the kind of hierarchy of my my cleanup crew, my snails, my shrimp, my crabs. And then, you know, I'd have a fish or two in there, but I was really focused on just my coral and growing that stuff out. And so when I got over to vivariums, it was like, oh, hey, this is way cheaper to maintain than a saltwater aquarium is is kind of almost an equal amount of, of complexity, uh, which I really enjoyed kind of putting together and looking at. Um, and it, it can be really functional. And, you know, you can bre- be breeding, you know, some, higher end, really nice, expensive kind of collector frogs. And so I just got into it kind of like that. I I was just really enjoying making the vivariums and I wanted something nice and cool and diurnal to kind of throw in there. And, you know, the rest is kind of history. Um, And in particular, I fell in love with Ufaga just because I feel like they fully embody that, you know, enclosed system that full ecosystem i'm not having to do much of anything other than provide them with the plants that they'd be using in the wild to reproduce and they're doing the rest and i love that kind of throw it all together sit back and enjoy approach um and you know safe to say i've raised plenty of tinctorias and and phyllobates you know tadpoles here and there but i just for me i really love the reward of of setting up your animals to not only thrive but to have their offspring thrive for them to do everything that they're doing in the wild uh, in captivity. That's just the most rewarding aspect of that to me. And that's kind of how I fell in love with it was more of that idea of not necessarily that single animal high, but more that building an ecosystem, building a little mini piece of the rainforest um, that these animals can live just as they would in the wild. And so the Ufaga in particular, I just, I love the colors. I love the body plan. I love the calls. And I just really enjoy, you know, because I travel a lot, you know, so I come in and I'm, you know, flushing the bromeliads and feeding everybody, you know, and all of a sudden I'll have three new faces, you know, hopping out of the back at me, nice and good and healthy and happy and colorful. And I'm like, wow, that's just a great feeling to have. (laughs) Which species and locales are you working with presently? Oh, man. Okay. So I've got um, Ufaga pamilio. Sylvatica, Histrionica, and Vicente currently. Oh, and I guess I do have one single uh, granulifera. Um, so I've got a good a good chunk. So I'll try and go through the list if I can remember. Pamilio, I have. I'll just I'll just have to go around my tanks mentally. Um, I've got Pamilio rambala, Red Frog Beach, Bastamenos. I've got non-line and strictly line of those. Um, I've got Ufaga Pamilio Esperanza, 
Punta Valiente, El Dorado, Quebrada Piti, uh, Bastamenos Cemeteries. I've got two groups of those. Um, I've got a group of Cristobals. I've got a group of Darklands, which are really nice. I've got a solo Rio Calubre. Um, do I have anybody else? Oh, and then I've got a group of Las Tablas. And then for Sylvatica, I've got a great proven pair of Bilsa that crank out like four babies for me every few months. I've got, and then I've got a pair of um, Diablito, uh, little the little devil, beautiful ones from Wakiri. And then for Histrionica, I've got Anchikaya. I've got two groups of large form redheads. My male is stunning. I've got a group of blues. I've got a group of small form redheads to Soros line. And then do I have anybody else? I hope I'm not forgetting anybody else. And then for Vicente, I've got um, Vicente Red um, from Taryn. And I've got Vicente Blue Green. And then I've got one little solo uh, Golfito granulifera uh, that I need to sex so I can pair it up. And I think that's everybody. And I've got like a pair of blues from like a service customer that are, you know, at my place. I've got like some juvenile uh, San Lorenzo Tinctorius that I had a friend drop off. Um, but I think those that's all of my frogs. Oh, I got a I got a Pata Blanca Sylvatica on a trade, um, a little offspring. So it's in my grow out. But I think that's everybody. So a lot of frogs and a lot of those I've got, you know, at least a trio or a 2.2 in most of those. Oh, uh, I've got um, Nicaraguan blue jeans. I forgot about them. Oops. But yeah, I've got a lot of frogs. <laughs> no, that's, that's decent size, especially for almost exclusively keeping obligates. That's a pretty, mm-hmm. that's a pretty eclectic collection you have there. Well, I just, I just love them. And I, you know, I've seen... Um, blue jeans in the wild. I've seen Phyllobates um, uh, vitatus in the wild, and I've seen Dendrobates erratus in the wild. But I just the Pamilio, the Histrionica. I just love them so much. The the red Vicente are quickly earning their place in my collection because they are just gorgeous as well. Um, but I I just have a soft spot for the large obligates, um, and I. Just can't get enough of them, sadly for me, because uh, my bank account certainly gets tired of them. Welcome to the club. <laughs> <laughs> what What was it like seeing dart frogs in the wild? I mean, was there anything that you noticed in the wild that you that you were able to take away and apply to your captive husbandry? Sure. So I I actually um, really look at um, the, the, the jungles of Costa Rica uh, that I've spent so much time in, uh, kind of like blueprints. And so I really, I'll take, I, I, I've got a ton of pictures in my phone from previous trips where I'll take pictures of like kind of the bank clay banks on the sides of the roads with like ferns and like Margravia and stuff and philodendron kind of growing on them. And I'll use a lot of that as inspiration in some of my tanks, just in terms of like placement or coloration or things like that. Um, but I would say just one of the, one of the coolest things in seeing dart frogs in the wild is just where you kind of find them like in the areas where you find blue jeans like 
they're everywhere. You can hear them calling. You see them all over the place. They're in the leaf litter. They're, you know, at head height, climbing up a tree, finding a bromeliad. Um, and it's just a really cool experience. And as far as it goes, um, the main thing I just try and incorporate is a lot of kind of sloped um, background pieces that kind of mimic those tree buttresses and roots like that. Cause that's where they're getting up on and, and getting their climb started. And in, in a lot of those forests is as they climb up on those big strangler fig kind of buttresses, and then they hop up and they make a treacherous climb up into the, you know, canopy, which could be 20, 30, 40 feet off the ground um, to get into those bromeliads to deposit those uh, eggs to feed those tadpoles. Um, but I, I do take a lot of uh, a lot of pointers from the rainforest because, after all, isn't that what we're trying to uh, imitate? Um, and so I, 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 I do like to pay close attention to those little minute details that can just make or break a tank. How do you set your vivariums up from, let's just say, from the bottom up? Like you have a preference sure. for a certain enclosure type, plants, lighting. Uh, I mean, like walk us through a build that you would do personally. Sure. So right now, um, it's kind of interesting because like I said, I, I really got into dart frogs kind of later and I, I learned how to do, you know, just your regular spray foam background silicone and eco worth kind of deal. And then I kind of took that and ran. And so my, my tanks are set up in kind of a hybrid way right now. I'd say my preferred method of setting up tank was easiest for me to maintenance and take care of. And what I think looks the best is I, um, I do a false bottom on PVC um, cutlings, and I put a plastic, I zip tie window screen around um, a plastic egg crate, lay that in there, I silicone the edges. And then um, for my background, I silicone um, fragments of that plastic egg crate a little bit off the glass. So when I spray foam in there, the spray foam kind of pulls around that and really just holds it into place because i was having some issue with spray foam peeling off the back um you know i was i was coating it with silicone and all sorts of stuff and it was still you know trying to fight me so now i do that and oh my gosh i mean you'd need a bodybuilder to rip that spray foam off the background now and usually what i do now is i just get some really nice pieces of driftwood uh primarily like ghost wood or um you know, Malaysian driftwood, uh, but I also use spider wood in some of my enclosures that I'm wanting more of like a rooted kind of look. And then I spray foam all that in. And then I've gotten into the habit of using Hygrolon or speaker fabric and kind of siliconing that over the spray foam. And then I put a quick coat of dry lock over that that I color kind of more of a, a reddish clay color uh, with some quick creep coloring and let that kind of dry and let it kind of cure and it ends up making a really nice um background that kind of just is is not too much of an eyesore before you know the moss and the liverwort and the plants kind of grow over it and that's how i've been doing most of my recent tanks is in is that way uh, but i've done them all sorts of i've done the hydroton on the bottom and the window screen on top and then um i use uh, uh abg of course uh, I get mine from Houston Frogs. Um, great guy, Chase Jennings. Uh, I get most of my dart frog supplies from him. Uh, he's my wholesaler for my business up here. So pretty much anything that you could buy from me, uh, dart frog wise, is coming straight from Houston Frogs. 
Um, and I really like his quality, his product. And so that's what I use in most of my tanks. But if I'm in a store somewhere, you know, at some local pet shop and I see a really nice piece of ghost wood or, uh, you know, something, I, I usually just grab it because I know I'm going to use it anyway. Because I really like that that darker kind of wood that's going to take on water, but it's not going to just biodegrade in six months because uh, it's like, ah, it just looks so good. That dark wood, once it's wet, once it's established and get some liverwort, some moss growing over it, like that's what I like to see. I like a nice aged tank and I like to set them up in a way that I'm, I'm more, I'm more kind of wait to be pleased with it later. I like to set it up, get it going, keeping it wet, letting it grow in. And then once it's at the place where I really like it, you know, then I'm trying to be like, mm, you know, what kind of frogs are worthy of this enclosure now that it's nice and, you know, fermented. Do you have some, some favorite plants that you like to use? Absolutely. Um, I'm a big, I'm a big shingler guy. Uh, Mark Gravi is some of my favorite. Uh, I've got a few different types of Raphidophora, Shingling Monstera that I really like to use. Um, of course, Tropical Liverwort is one of my favorite things to incorporate in the tanks. As far as bromeliads go, um, you, you'll see a variety in my tanks. But once again, that's because I've I've been kind of trying out a lot of different styles and and progressing as I go. And so my older tanks have a lot more Neoregalia. Um, but my newer tanks, I, I'm just a huge fan of Vresia. Um, so that's usually what I'm using now. Um, really smooth. Once they kind of grow in a little bit, they've got a lot of strength to them. And I find that my Histrionica um, and my, my Sylvatica really prefer those as opposed to some of the Neoregalia. Um, but yeah, I would say as far as it goes, Margravia, Vresia, uh, Raphidophora, Philodendron, all that good stuff. All those tropical Central South American um, plants are like what I what my go tos. Um, very often am I targeting Asian species to put in my tanks, which makes me a little purist. I still use them if I get if I come across something really nice. I've got some Raphidophora tetrasperma in some of my tanks, but I'm the more I go forward, the more I'm like, well, if I'm going all you know out of my way to make it really natural, I might as well use plants that they would you know be on and around you know <laughs> in Central and South America. I'm guilty of that too. I like, well, I shouldn't say I'm guilty of it. I'm guilty of the opposite. I'll, I'll look, I'll look at one of my vivariums and I'll think there's not a single plant in here. That's even remotely close to, <laughs> to Saffron. <Right. laughs> well, it's like, you know, he's like, Oh, that looks pretty. That looks good. That looks nice. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I gotten to the point where I'm like, you know, Hmm, stuff, stuff won't look good to me anymore. Like it's a beautiful plant, but I'll be like, well, mm, that's not very realistic. So I don't want to put that in there. Like, I'd rather throw in a bunch of just like Margravia rectiflora than, you know, some really beautiful Asian shinglers. Cause I know it, I mean, it, it doesn't matter to anybody else, but I'm going to be like, hmm, that seems, something seems off to me. Something seems fishy. Uh, now, safe to say, of course, I've got a mix in all my tanks, really. I don't think I have a single tank without, um, you know, a variety of continental plants, but uh, I, as I move forward, the plants that I am bringing in, you know, I, I, I'm using a lot of philodendron, uh, amidrium, um, you know, stuff, stuff that I that I like that looks a little more South American, Central American. What about your feeding regimen? You, you'd mentioned before, and I, I didn't realize that you had kind of a relationship. Which which zoo did you say that you were supplying fruit flies to? Um, I supply Dallas World Aquarium. Well, okay, excuse me, Aquarium. Uh, they're they're a, a huge kind of walk-in immersive Central South American experience. 
Um, and they've got a massive selection of poison dart frogs. One of the only places where you can go and see Histrionica, Philobates, all sorts of stuff on display and kept really well. Um, and I'm good friends with the um, uh, amphibian guy who's up there. Um, and so, yeah, I, I supply them with their fruit flies. As far as my feeding regimen goes, uh, I actually feed about, I feed pretty heavily about once or twice a week. Um, but I, I have a banana feeding station available at all times. And so what I'll do is I'll feed over that and sprinkled vitamins over that and have the flies kind of mate in there. So there's a little bit of, of, of gut loading of the larva for the few days that they're going without any food. And that's actually been one of the best ways that I have found to not lose any froglets because I was having, you know, Pimilio come out so small and I was pulling them and throwing them in tubs and just trying to keep up with springtails. And I, I wasn't having like huge, massive die-offs or anything, but stuff was growing slow and, you know, keeping up with having 100, 200 springtails to seed out, you know, every few days. It's just like, oh, you know, such a chore. And I started using that banana puck method and leaving the banana pieces in the tanks and, the, you know, the flies hatch out so small and they gut load on that surface with with the vitamins and things i I'm, I'm having froglets grow you know twice as fast as i ever had them grow big healthy strong froglets that i don't have any developmental issues with at all because they're getting protein they're getting calcium right off the get-go instead of just you know a mouthful of phosphorus eating you know springtails that i can't really successfully dust um and honestly i suggest that to anybody who's raising like tiny stuff run into maya pamilio like, I mean, my histrionic could come out of water being able to eat Hydei, you know, half the time. But my Pamilio, some of those little dainty ones, some of the Vicente, you know, I don't lose anything now that I just have that little piece of banana in there, sprinkle some vitamins on top, and uh, they, they do well. Big old fat, happy, happy babies. I, I, I'm usually selling Pamilio around two and a half months, um, and they're, you know, half grown, uh, which is ridiculous because normally, you know, a lot of people aren't even letting them go until three and a half, four months. Um, but I, I swear by it. It works for me. Great. You know, it might not work for everybody, but, um, I, I try it. If you're having skinny stuff coming out or you're not able to get enough weight on froglets before they're in that kind of MBD worry zone. Um, oh man, banana, banana slice. And that, that should get you good or pureeing banana with, uh, vitamins and putting it in a Petri dish or something like that. Um, both of those ways I've had just amazing calculated success with raising those froglets what about your media are you making your own fruit fly media or are you using the name brand sure so um i i have this old recipe off a of dendro board and then i actually cut it with houston frogs media um so it's like eight or nine oh gosh actually it's probably closer to like 15 cups of my own stuff and then i'll throw in like three cups of houston frogs um fruit fly media and I've got great success with that. It's a potato flake base. Um, doesn't stink, doesn't mold, good production, great production. Um, and uh, I, I really like it. Uh, I can't complain. And um, Houston Frogs, you know, he's got his own trademarked recipe. I'm not sure what all goes into it, but I add a little bit of that um, and balances out anything if I'm missing anything and uh, does great. What about um, feeding frequency? You said you only feed heavily like once a week. Mm -hmm. 
do you, are you are you supplementing any other feeders in there as well like um like bean beetles or, or anything else sure so i've got um a, a, a good selection of um isopods small isopods i've actually cultured a a small native species that i found in texas um about the same size as dwarf whites but more elongate and um i vary between those and what i do is i'll actually move around pieces of driftwood so i i set up big heavy pieces of wood in my uh vivariums for kind of the refuge for the springtails and the isopods because especially my bigger stuff uh will just you know come tearing out and they'll eat all of my you know cleanup crew and i'll actually move those around every once in a while to have some enrichment for the larger frogs to eat you know a ton of different types of uh, isopods and springtails i'll throw in springtails every once in a while um primarily i'm feeding fruit fly larvae and fruit flies um i i was feeding bean beetles um on and off last summer and it just got so much to keep up with i didn't really see any measured um difference with my with my big stuff uh, even even a lot of my uh uh females were like just spitting them out they, they they didn't like them they were too hard i guess i don't know um but uh, primarily i i'm doing fruit flies isopods springtails um i'd like to do some more like aphids and stuff but i cannot uh i cannot find anywhere selling aphids in the states you're not basically you're not my, going to either that's like totally taboo yeah. aphid, aphids i i like i like the variety i like adding a bunch of stuff um i also culture uh soil mites in my uh i i also raise uh beetle larvae and i'll culture soil mites in old beetle substrate and then i pour those into my grow outs for my pamilio as well um and they seem to really like that um to uh, i don't i don't get any any like dust mites on my stuff anymore the grain mites on my cultures now that i've got this this newer recipe and i keep all my stuff a little more streamlined so i don't get those anymore but when i used to get those i just set cultures in with the baby pamilio and um they would just gobble up all my little mites too <laughs> that's been a thorn in my side now going on the past couple of months is i've just been getting really poor production i had i had seeded a culture off about a year and a half ago that that really gave mm -hmm. me production very consistently for, for months and months. And then going back to a year and a half ago when the COVID lockdown started here in New York, I was kind of like, I had to really like milk this culture for everything that it had. And I ended up mixing a few others together and I ended up getting a really big problem with, with grain mites. And it's amazing how much damage they can do to a culture, how much oh, they really outcompete it. For sure. Do you have any advice on how to get rid of mites or how to keep, I mean, you, you kind of hinted at it before, but is there anything more detail that you want to share about sure. it? so um i mean i think the biggest thing for me is i don't i don't keep cultures to the point where they're that like super dry kind of crusty um i i get a re-up of cultures once a month and then i seed entire new cultures so that's one of the big things that's helped me if that's not an option for people um what i do is i've got uh uh i don't ever suggest him for hardly anything but josh's frogs uh bug blade i keep all my cultures in a closet and i just dust the entire surface of every shelf uh with diatomaceous earth and i found that that just shreds your stuff and it, and if you have them you can 
get rid of them that way as well by making new cultures. Um, and I actually will dust my flies before seeding them into new cultures with calcium or vitamins. And that's something that I saw and I was like, hmm, I'll try that. I don't have any trouble. I pour all, you know, if I'm making melanogaster, I take all my melanogaster out, dump them all into a, a cup, sprinkle them with vitamins, shake them up, pour them into all the new cultures, set those new cultures on the diatomaceous earth. They do great. No mites, no nothing. And I've even gotten to that point from having cultures in there with mites and that diatomaceous earth kills them before they can get to, you know, any of the newer cultures and, and that whole generation just kind of dwindles and dies. Um, but yeah, just keeping things clean, keeping things consistent. And um, I think dusting the flies really helps. It kind of shakes off a lot of those mites or, or suffocates them or does something to them. I'm not entirely sure. Um, but I, I don't really have any trouble with mites anymore um, because of yeah, diatomaceous earth and dusting the flies uh, before I throw them in wherever I'm storing them. Um, I mean, before I put them into the cultures, uh, before I put them into wherever I'm storing them. Uh, that, that's my suggestion. Uh, sometimes it's media that encourages mites a little more, maybe trying a new media. Uh, but other than that, that's that's what I do. Yeah, I usually dust with a supplement. I, I mean, I'm using, uh, what is it, um, Rapashi's product, because um, mm -hmm. I think it's Calcium Plus. I use that. I, I put everyone everything into like a 32-ounce deli cup. I dust them off. You know, I get a lot of the supplement on there, just shake them around, shake them around. And then I'll go to each culture and seed it. and it's just, sometimes it's just like unavoidable. I mean, as far as the diet, the diatomaceous earth goes, I mean, at work we use it, we use it for pest control because it's a non-chemical pest control, but uh, I know that they sell food grade diatomaceous earth. I know that it's generally inert, but I, I don't personally like the idea of breathing it in on a regular basis just because mm -hmm. of, I mean, for anybody who doesn't know, they're basically diatoms. They're these crushed up prehistoric tiny little organisms and you're basically plankton skeletons yeah 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 and you're basically making like they're like tiny little razor blades for these really small insects and, and arthropods it basically just cuts them to pieces but that, that was really the only reason why i was apprehensive about it but i've heard that people have had good luck with contact paper like sticky paper have, huh? have you ever used that i have not the 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 main thing is um that i that i've been using diatomaceous earth with is that the Josh's frog stuff is really heavy. Like the food grade diatomaceous earth is like fine powder. And like, you can't even, I mean, you could blow a whole bag away, you know, with one breath. Like it is super fine. The, the Josh's frog stuff is, is a little heavier. It's a little more like granule and it doesn't quite carry, um, you know, in the, in the wind as much. And, and the closet I have is pretty closed off. I haven't tried contact paper, but like I said, I don't even have any trouble with mites anymore. So I guess if I run into them again, I could always try it, but it seems like whatever, <laughs> whatever's going on in my closet, has been, uh, um, enough to, to give them the boot. Yeah. I'm just, I'm always curious just to pick everyone else's brain and see what they think, because I, I mean, I had, I had a conversation with a couple of different people. I ended up buying cultures from three different vendors and I, I mean, again, I'm not going to name names cause I don't want it to be a, a critical thing, but the one vent, the one vendor is is huge, and I get good production from this vendor. But when I go to reculture from the, you know, from the, I want to go to seed new cultures. They always fail, always from this one vendor, always. Second vendor, 
I was told that they really don't have much in the way of mites. Okay. They sent me the cultures. I ordered like four Heidi, I I think something like that. And when they arrived, I got, there was like maybe like 15 flies in each culture and it just bombed. So I was like, all right. The third vendor, uh, similar to the second one, didn't really have a tremendous amount of flies in there, but this is the vendor that I got that first couple of cultures going back about a year and a half that did very well. So I seeded those and those did very, very well. So where I'm going with this is, does it really matter where you're getting your primary culture from that you want to reseed, or is it just a matter of the methods that the individual person uses? Uh, I think it's super important, and this is just from more of an entomological standpoint uh, for me personally. In that, um, most species of insects can only go, you know, X number of generations before becoming primarily sterile. And what I was having happening is I would go about a month seeding off of the same stuff, uh, same way, and I would be, you know, seeding out pretty heavy, making new cultures, and at about week you know, I mean, about at the sixth generation, I would, I would see like a drastic decrease, uh, like 20% less, like not like sterilized, not like, oh my gosh, they're totally bombed. But I was like, hmm, you know, a few weeks ago, I was getting a ton of stuff. And at the time I had a few other places ordering flies for me and I was getting some complaints that they were slowing down. And now what I do to completely prevent that is I will mix different lines of fruit flies. So uh, Houston Frogs, Chase Jennings, he keeps his lines of different flies like separate. Like he's gotten, you know, oh, he's got Melanogaster from this person and he's got, you know, Black Hydei from this person and Golden Hydei from this person. And then he's got another set or two from other people that he keeps distinct. And so what I do is when I go down there, I'll get, you know, um, a few different of each. And then when I go to seed my cultures, uh, I'll mix those two different strains. So it's the same thing, same black Hydei, but then you get a whole refresh of genetics, not enough to get them to be flying around or anything, but enough to kind of refresh those, those reproductive cycles, refresh that, that genetic cycle. Because, I, I mean, obviously fruit flies are fruit flies. They're going to breed and breed and breed and breed and breed. Uh, but you want to kind of be in that Goldilocks zone where you're not so inbred that production is down and, you know, you, you've got a good chance of a, of a culture bombing or whatnot, um, but that you're not going to have stuff being like, oh, great, we've got a full new set of, of traits that we have access to now. We're going to start flying or we're going to, you know, do whatever. And so I think it is important. Some people might disagree. Um, I think it's super important where you get flies from because if they're, you know, culturing a hundred cultures off of the, you know, one thirteen original fly culture they made, you know, three years ago. Yeah, it's going to be slower. Yeah, it might bomb. You know, they might just be making enough to sell them. And then they're they're counting on, you know, maybe flies not doing so well second or third generation after sell. And so I don't know, but I definitely think if I was going to say it matters where you get your flies. It matters. And then it does matter how you set them up, but fruit flies are fruit flies. And if you're running into trouble with production, if you're running into trouble, um, you know, with, with population, um, and, and, and you're just doing the regular thing where, you know, they've got, you know, your regular cloth lids, they're in a room temperature, you know, secure, dark area with, with not too much airflow, not too little, 
um, and you can't figure out what else is going on, I would say it, it might be a genetic thing and you might want to either refresh some of that genetics or, or, or go with a different vendor. That's what I was going for. I, I ended, well, what really happened was I ended up getting flyers. I ended up getting Melanogaster and Heidi Eye and I'm like, shit, you know, <laughs> sorry, I yeah. don't normally curse on the show, but that no, was, that was that moment where, uh, they were showing up, up, you know, my frog room is in my basement. And then they were showing up upstairs and they were getting down to like the, the, the fresh peaches that my wife got from the store. And everyone in the house was asking me questions that I couldn't really answer. So I just tossed everything. I tossed everything. I went like a week, just so anything that was out there. I turned the heat up, get everything nice and dry. And then I reordered again from a, you know, a, a, a vendor that I thought was going to be pretty good, but uh, again, that first vendor I didn't have a lot of luck with, so I went with a couple other shots. And right now, it's looking good. I'm waiting for. I made. I think I made like eight cultures, which I'm waiting to mature. But I still have a couple of others that I ordered that are kind of like producing already, just to tide me over. But yeah, have you ever gotten flyers well, before? Uh, well, that's that's the other side of my coin. Is I don't ever get flyers in my cultures ever. I get flyers when I seed my banana pucks. And that's actually something that happens in some species of insects is that if they're fed a more natural diet and they're breeding in a more natural way, um, they sometimes can have those traits kind of pick back up. So I have a very reduced amount of flyers when I get them. Uh, but every once in a while, if, if I've done a huge feeding, um, you know, obviously some will kind of crawl through vents and stuff and they'll be flightless. But a generation in, you know, when they when a few kind of sneak away and pupate under the leaf litter or something, every once in a while I'll get uh, yeah I'll get like a batch of flyers, usually usually Heidi eye, but I've got a few little traps in there. And the banana pucks that I put in there, they usually just stay on anyway, because uh, it's kind of like they have an attractant there already. Um, but yeah, I I do get a few flyers, which can be annoying. Um, but as far as it goes, I I, I make probably. 200 250 fruit fly cultures you know every three weeks or so um so genetics are, are worth it to put up with a few little flyers for me because otherwise i don't need you know some big customers that rely on me for you know 30 40 50 huge booming producing cultures at a time uh, for me to just be like sorry everything's down this month i don't have anything for you um but i think um I, I don't. Have, I never have flyers coming out of my cultures, so I don't know where they're coming from. I don't know if it's black Heidi eye mating with golden Heidi eye when I just am doing a big feeding and not paying attention to what I'm throwing in there or what. But I, uh, I, I get flyers every once in a while. Sadly, yeah, there's always going to be that one troublemaker that spoils yeah. it for <laughs> spoils it for everybody right. else. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're we're kind of winding down here, but I wanted to ask you a couple sure. of questions about what you think the role of the hobby is in terms of conservation? I mean, can, can you be mm. pro hobby and be pro conservation and can you be mm. pro conservation and pro hobby? Absolutely. So, I mean, obviously there's extremes to both sides. Um, but I think, I think the dart frog hobby is probably one of the best hobbies um, in terms of not only respect, but participation in and around conservation. Um, through sustainable farms like Wakiri and, and through Tesoros, you have these frogs kind of stored. Um, it's, it's almost like the hobby has become a hard drive of their genetic information because 
dark frogs, you know, we're not, I mean, we shouldn't be, we're not hybridizing, you know, these different locales. We've got, we've got the geographical, um, you know, pinpoints, locations of where these animals come from. And should something happen to that native population and we address whatever issue occurred, you know, we've got a whole slew of people that could, you know, post up individuals for rewilding that area. And I think that that aspect of, of private conservation is incredibly important because I can't tell you how many zoological institutions and museums and aquariums that I know of that are quote unquote part of an amphibian breeding um, you know, program that haven't had any eggs or tadpoles from, you know, Histrionica or Lamani or Sylvatica or any of the more difficult to breed dart frogs in in years. And so it's incredibly important for the hobby to not only be protecting and storing genetically these animals in captivity, but to be producing them as well um, for the captive side of things. Because th there's a lot of people that are like, hey, I have no interest in breeding or I don't have any interest in breeding large scale. I have no interest in the whole conservation side of things, but they're collectors um, and, you know, they want those frogs. Uh, sometimes by any means possible and it's great to be able to provide legal healthy you know established frogs as opposed to people turning to you know less less legal means uh you know via poaching or or brown boxing you know threatened species of amphibians because really at the end of the day um these animals are 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 not terribly difficult to get to breed. Even some of the you know super ridiculously difficult species, um, usually if you put enough time and effort and money into it, uh, you can get them to get to that point. Um, which which I think you know there's no reason why people shouldn't be able to keep some of that type of stuff. Uh, you know companies that are that are restricted that are limited on how much they can harvest, and then they produce, you know, captive bred specimens for the private hobby in a legal way, um, in a legitimate way, uh, can in fact be, you know, a, a lifeblood, uh, you know, lifesaver for some of these um, locales and species of frogs. Absolutely, for sure. I think you could very easily be pro-hobby, pro-conservation, um, but obviously you can see exactly where people butt heads about that because the hobby is what drives a lot of the poaching and a lot of the, you know, illegal trade. And, and that's a sad reality, but I don't think that limiting what we can do in the hobby and what species we can work with in the hobby um, is necessarily going to resolve that sort of issue. I think that uh, what we can do is focus more on that sustainable farming, that producing these threatened and, and endangered locales or species in captivity and um, just kind of saving that snapshot of these beautiful genetic um, oddities that, you know, are, are extremely threatened in their native range. So it's kind of a, you know, it, it can go, they can go hand in hand, they can fight with each other, but I'm definitely on the side of conservation um, and the hobby, you know, working together to, um, you know, just help these frogs that we all love and enjoy. Because, I mean, like we said, it's hard for people to connect with and resonate with stuff that's out of sight, out of mind that they don't get to see, that they have no idea what it is that lives on the other side of the world. When you bring these animals in, people can see, wow, that's a beautiful animal. Wow, that's super amazing. I want something like that. And they're legally able to um, pursue that uh, in a legitimate way. Yeah, being a purist helps as well. I mean, you, you used that term earlier, and I, I like to think that I'm somewhat of a purist, although my plant keeping is not 
<laughs> but um, right. I think that we definitely have a step going in the right direction, especially with like Wakiri and Tesoros and places like that. Because now there really is no reason to, I mean, you can still get wild caught frogs because technically these are, you know, they're, 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 you know, they're being raised in situ. It's not like they're being raised out of country or something like that. So you're still technically getting wild frogs, but you're getting them in a way that is a lot more responsible. And I, I always tell people, look, you know what, you're going to get what you pay for. And if you're paying, I mean, I, I mean, let's just make the distinction between like a, a really like super rare locale of some bizarre obligate. Let's just say, let's just say more commonplace species like, um, I'm trying to think of a good, good one, but I don't know. Let's just say Phylobates terribilis. Okay. Cause occasionally we get new, new locales of pile of Phylobates come in. Well, I'd rather pay 80, 90, 200 bucks for one that I know is going to come into the country clean and well cared for. As opposed to taking a crapshoot on one that was brought in under who knows what circumstances that's that's not necessarily Caring, whatever. Well. Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, just the horror stories of people getting stuff in with, you know, chytrid and wiping out an entire collection and having to just start from scratch and scrap everything and torch everything and clean everything. It's just like, why risk it? You know, it's like, okay, great, you got some, you know, Sylvatica koi, you know, off of some shady guy, but you know now you risk your entire collection and and you know word word in the pipeline is that you know some of these harder to get locales and more sought after locales of histrionica of sylvatica you know could very realistically be available in the next few years from one of the legitimate sustainable farms so it's like absolutely i think there's a way to go about it and it's important to have kind of that hobby and conservation side kind of walk hand in hand um, as opposed to be you know, in competition with one another, like, oh, well, I don't want to spend that premium. I'd rather buy something cheap or I'd rather get something from an illegitimate source, um, you know, because then you're 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 kind of stabbing the hobby in the back. Because if we are stealing these animals instead of farming them, uh, you know, they're they're going to run out. There's not going to be any left. And then you've kind of, you know, it's ruined it for everybody because now that's never going to be a locale that anybody's going to be able to keep or work with or see in the wild because, it's un unread unregulated and and you know poached out of existence. I want to ask you one last question, and this is kind of subjective, but do you think that having a high price point keeps the hobby on a higher level than others? Let me explain why. Okay. Sure. Sure. Let's just say that I mean you you work primarily with obligates. Okay, obligates aren't yep. necessarily the cheapest of frogs. So no, they are not. <laughs> It seems to me like it's easier to maintain the genetic integrity of large obligates because number one, they're very ex expensive. Number two, not everybody works with them. And number three, they're just, they're not, you have to be a hobbyist to really even know that they are available as opposed to species like Aratus, which are, I mean, I used this, this term before, but like kind of like a garbage species where no one really cares if you're mixing locales. So the hobby in general, do you think that it benefits the, I guess the hobby as a whole to have a kind of, um, to kind of deter people about it? You know, Sarah, I'm going with this. Like it's, yeah, if, it's yeah. if it's a bigger investment, people are more inclined to take it seriously. Whereas if it's just some kind of like a disposable thing, yeah, people don't care what they mix, who they, you know, who they cohab with. They don't care what they get. Yeah. And that ultimately just dilutes the bloodlines that we've been trying to maintain. 
Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think I, I, you're, you're hitting the nail right on the head there. I think, uh, I think that the price point not only, you know, benefits the hobby and, and, you know, weaning off the people who aren't serious about it, who, who, you know, are more haphazard in their keeping, you know, if you're spending 1500, $2,000, $3,000, sometimes on a frog, uh, you know, you know what you're doing and you're going to do your best to make sure that frog leads a happy, healthy life. You're not going to want to devalue it by hybridizing it with anything or, or, you know, mistreating it in any way. But I also think that it also provides a great, um, benefit to conservation because a lot of these huge price points are coming in from, you know, these sustainable farms that require, you know, the revenue to buy more land, to put more money into equipment, into space, to house and conserve these species that, you know, we enjoy in captivity. But I think you, you've really got it figured out right then and there, because I mean, me coming from reptiles and stuff, I mean, the amount of just kind of i mean really bottom of the barrel type of people who you know bearded dragons ball pythons are disposable animals to them that they're just grabbing stuff because they think it's cool they get bored of it they mistreat it they abuse it 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 dies from neglect or they get rid of it or they you know they're they're not serious about it and you know when you get to the point where you're dropping you know fifteen hundred dollars on a frog you're you're gonna set it up the best you know how the the with all the help you can get with you know, the top of the line supplements, the top of the line, everything. And it's just been, I mean, night and day for me working from reptiles to this kind of higher end dart frog world. I, I always, I always kind of make the joke where it's like, I, I feel like I'm always selling to, you know, middle-aged businessmen who, who, you know, are dumping 10,000, $20,000 a year on, on poison dart frogs. And it's great. I don't have to argue with somebody who's wanting to put a bearded dragon in a shoebox and keep it under their bed until it, you know, starves or can't grow any bones because it doesn't get any vitamins. And so, um, it, it is, it, it does kind of, uh, call a higher level of seriousness of, of, uh, kind of authenticity and of, you know, respect for these people to, put so much time and money and effort and that's what's so great is because once you get up to the large obligate you know histrionica lamani sylvatica kind of level everybody's kind of in the same mindset of wow these frogs are beautiful you know we want to try and breed them we want to work on them you know the the community is just so friendly so um encouraging and so um really just you know the best thing i can say is non-toxic i mean the venomous snake world the the reptile world so many other these hobbies that i've been a part of everybody's just at each other's throats everybody's just trying to make a quick buck and you know that's a really difficult thing albeit impossible thing to do when you get to the level of um you know these really expensive pricey uh frogs that you know are expensive that it's it's a real commitment if you're going to buy those you're going to want to do well with them and so i think to your point absolutely i think a high price point not only benefits the hobby not only benefits conservation, but benefits the animals. Um, because you know, if you're, if you're going to spend so much money on frogs, I mean, I know if I'm spending money on frogs, I'm going to make sure that they're as happy and as healthy as they can be. Agreed. hundred percent. It's funny because you're, you're right. I never even really thought about it in the, I mean, I've been doing the show almost, almost a year now. It'll be a year next month. And I don't ever think I've had anyone 
have a petty squabble or a complaint about another breeder or keeper or I, I've really never heard it. It's actually pretty it's actually pretty refreshing because yeah, I, absolutely. I never really involved myself too much in social circles, but just from being in the exotics hobby in and out since I was like eleven years old, I mean, yeah, I heard different drama stories about this and that what yeah, the Darfrog hobby is pretty uh it's pretty on the up and up. You know, I, I never even really thought about it that way, but yeah, you're right. It's, it's great. I mean, it's so refreshing. Like I'm not even, I'm not even really active in any of those. I mean, I still, I still work with venomous snakes, you know, I, I still keep them on and off, but I mean, almost all those people, I'm just like, you know what, <clears throat> I'd rather just, you know, sit, sit back, you know, have, have a few beers with some dark frog people and just talk about which locales we think are the prettiest and, and just relax because there's there's not a single bad thing i could say about any dart frog person in any of my um you know dart frog circles i just i enjoy hanging out with everybody they're all they're all looking to you know what's what's the best way that we can set stuff up what's the coolest way we can set stuff up what's the most natural way we can set stuff up how can we make our frogs you know succeed and do the best in captivity how can we you know breed some of these rare locales and it's just it's just a good time it's like the perfect combination for me keeping really cool stuff making really cool tanks and and contributing to animal conservation in that kind of private um hobby way and that's just the perfect blend for me and everybody's pretty cordial and respectful it's just like it's pretty good yeah it's a breath of fresh air and a otherwise miserable miserable world that we have out there that's yeah. true that's true yeah. well jack i want to thank you really for sharing a lot of your uh, your insights and your personal experience it's been it's it's i mean everyone i have on the show has always been informative but um you know i especially with sharing your uh, fruit fly production methods and whatnot it was very very insightful do you want to just mention for any of the listeners who are who haven't f- found you out yet where they can find out your youtube and any other social media that you have going on yeah, absolutely. So we are on, uh, I mean, obviously, primarily YouTube, Jack's World of Wildlife. You can search that up. Uh, we'll show up. You can search that on Google or in the YouTube search bar, and you'll be able to find us. Um, I'm also on Facebook. Um, if you're a dart frog person, you 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 heard some enticing locale that I have, and you want to see what I have available, um, you can message me on Facebook. I'm probably mutual friends with the people you know, or we're already Facebook friends. Uh, Jack Schoenhoff. And, um, I'm also, I also have a Facebook and Instagram page for Jack's World of Wildlife on Facebook. It's Jack's World of Wildlife. And my Instagram handle is no spaces, Jack's World of Wildlife. So pretty easy to find me, Jack's World of Wildlife. Anybody's free to message me about what I've got available or if they've got any questions about anything that I'm working with. Um, I'm, I'm usually pretty quick to respond. I'm not famous yet, so I've got plenty of time to respond to, uh, DMS and Facebook messages and all sorts of stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Good stuff. Good stuff. All right, everyone. I want to thank Jack for being my guest tonight. I want to thank all of you guys for listening. Hope everything's going well for y'all. Catch up with you guys again soon. 